Hello, I am Tracy Hitchings. My guest is Mikey Brown, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist and frontman of New Zealand's rock band, Outside In. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening and a very good night to you wherever you are across the globe. I am transmitting from the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. You have tuned into Tracy's Prog World. Well, good morrow out there, all you fine listeners. Have we got a great show ahead of us today? So get yourselves a drink, get yourself comfy. And if you're driving, you know the drill. Be mindful of those bad drivers. And I'll, you know, I've got to tell you between you and me, it's mostly those Aussies. Yes, I know I love Aussies. I live here, for goodness sake. But yeah, it's it's personal experience and um they're not very good on the freeways. They overtake on the inside lane and all that stuff. It scares the living daylights out of me. Anyway, we've been having some wonderful winter warm weather here, but I'm sure Mikey is going to whip up more than a storm in a teacup with his life journeys as a rock singer in various forms and how he is as the frontman of Outside In. So let's bring the magic of Mikey to the fore and hear his tales of musical marvels, his adventures to the beyond, I'll keep you waiting no longer. So, Mikey, if you're there somewhere in cyberspace, um, speak up or forever hold your peace. Good morning, Tracy. Mikey, welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you again. You're so welcome. Great to see you too. And it's uh, fine to have you on the show here. I've been so looking forward to this, Mikey. I love your music. The music of your band is fantastic. So we're going to get to talk about that, but we're going to get to talk a lot about you and where where it all began for you. So um, anyway, where are you actually calling from this moment in time? Um, I'm at work work today. I don't get to work from the studio at home every day. So I'm working at um, Fronto Print, which is my printing and graphic design shop. Ah. Um, so I've got a couple of staff working and hopefully they won't need any uh, emergency bossing at this point for the next hour or so. Isn't it great to be your own boss, eh? That's really good. Oh, it has its moments. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear that. And what part of um, New Zealand are you actually calling from? So we're based in Auckland, uh, Tamaki Makoto, which is in the uh, North Island. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. So I'm going to go back a little bit where it all began for Mikey. And um, I'm sure he's going to interject where he, where he needs to or I'll fight, invite him into. So let's share it, guys, out there. I know you're all waiting. So, Mikey, you started playing music from the age of five when your mum and grandmother encouraged you to learn the piano. You were writing poems around 11 years of age and then started to put, um, put words to music at around 12 years of age and also playing music with other kids uh, when starting high school. Very quickly discovered that the piano wasn't going to cut it if you wanted to get in with the band and kids. Is that correct, Mikey? Yeah, well, I wanted to be a musician. I started to feel that that was what I wanted to do. And uh, so I wanted to hang out with the cool kids that were playing guitars and listening to Nirvana. And um, I wanted to be part of that world and um, lugging along the um, electric keyboard to try and jam with these dudes just didn't didn't seem to cut it. So I thought, I better... um, I better invest in a second-hand guitar and learn a few chords and try and weasel my way into the scene that way. So a good friend of mine um, taught me my first few chords on guitar and I went and picked up a cheap second-hand Samick 
uh, electric from um, cash converters and I was away. Absolutely. And I hear that that was just $75. Yeah, that was a big spend in those days for me. That was, <laughs> it was, uh, wasn't it? Months of pocket money. <laughs> <laughs> you say the dream, Mikey, because it all began there, didn't it? And uh, from the, your guitar point of view and all those experiences. So you played in rock bands from um, throughout high school. Upsilon. Uh, Right, and uh, joined your first alternate rock band, Graham. I'm going to get back to that in a moment, at around 90 years old. You say you were pretty avant-garde and um, experimented with some pretty out-there song ideas. You started to get a bit more experience playing live in venues and with band and with this band, uh, but was eventually kicked out for being too mainstream music taste-wise. Uh, you suspected, quote, my interest in smoking weed and not turning up for band practice was also a factor in my extraction as well. A big whoops there, I think, Mikey, don't you? And uh, yeah, tell us about that. And also the name of this band, Graham. I've got, you know, I'm just loving that because I've always wanted a cat called uh, Kevin. And um, But now I think I want a cat called Graham. But tell us about that, a band called Graham and being kicked out of it. <laughs> so it's an interesting, uh, the way that I met the guitar player actually I didn't, I didn't mention this to you, but I was actually working at McDonald's part-time as like a after-school job, which was very glamorous indeed. And um, one day I was through the short straw to be dressed up as uh, Grimace, that big purple monster that represents McDonald's. And the security chaperone that they allocated me was this young kid who couldn't really protect me, but it was supposed to protect me from any kids wanting to push or kick me in this big furry suit. And um, we got chatting about music and realized that we had a couple of bands that we both really loved in common. And then it turned out, hey, do you want to come and join my band? So we became good mates and um, started writing interesting music together. He was very, very genius out there for such a young dude. And um, being influenced by bands like Mr. Bungle and, and, and really having some sort of crazy avant-garde sort of ideas all mixed together with a bit of my sort of pop sensibilities, trying to put some melodies and song, uh, songwriting chops over the top. So these guys wanted to do something that was just really, really way out there. And I was trying to keep up, but um, I think eventually, yeah, they, they, because I was listening to sort of the radio tunes at the time a lot more than I do these days, I think they sort of felt that I was a bit too mainstream influenced for the group. Plus I was wagging band practices to um, get up to mischief. I was 19, I was discovering, uh, you know, the uh, fun life that I was discovering and, um, so I didn't think my commitment levels were quite where they wanted them to be at that time, but I was still growing as a musician and learning that this was my path. And, um, you know, I needed to kind of take ownership and grow into it myself. So it kind of worked out well, as much as I was heartbroken, being kicked out of, of the situation uh, was a big wake up call for me, who I'd kind of coasted by uh, before that. But I, I think it was a good catalyst for me kind of, taking ownership and responsibility of my own music journey and starting my own group that I was the leader and the principal songwriter for. And that, that was a good growth catalyst for me. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, it really sounds like it. And don't we all need that and don't we all get it? Uh, it turns us into, to, to, to be better at what we do, we have to have experienced something like that. Otherwise, we don't know. We don't know what we've got even. So uh, totally. that's pretty amazing. Well, after that, I understand that you probably started your own band called Crash Test for Favourite Things. And you really started that's up. That's a catchy name. Yes, it is a catchy name, isn't it? I was thinking of Crash Test <laughs> Dummies, actually, if you remember them. Do you remember them? We got that a bit. Yeah, I bet you did. Yes. Well, of course you did. It's going to bound to happen. But you still did your own Crash Test for Favourite Things. Tell us a bit about that, because you learned about putting um, on shows and doing gigs etc etc so tell us a bit about that experience now you're trying to sort of understand what you need to do after that um yeah sort of uh being chucked out weedy type of experience <laughs> uh, so I quickly kind of realized that it was a lot harder to not just be a passenger in a group but actually to run a group uh it, it definitely gave me uh, a lot of learning experience that I needed, you know, putting on shows, marketing the group, basically being the band leader for the first time, which was a title that I kind of shirked even for years into Crash Test. I didn't really want to be the band manager and the band leader. And I had I had to. I grew into that role even though I didn't want it. And as soon as I took ownership of it and and accepted that was my fate, uh things started to happen well and I learned how to put on shows and I learned how to network and make friends with other groups and I just yeah I think Crash Test was great in the sense that it was teaching me how to be the artist that I wanted to be and, and how to find that uh, thing that I was looking for you know and um, I like to call those years the kind of musically naive years because uh, I hadn't kept up my piano lessons that I'd started as a kid and I hadn't really had in, in that much formal training. And so I was, I knew the vibe I was going for and I knew what I wanted the music to feel like, um, but I didn't necessarily know how to achieve that from a technical perspective. And um, it was an awesome band to be in. The guys were all, you know, we had the vibe and we had the feel and we could convey that to the audience really well, despite our technical lacking. Um, we, we really kind of, learned how to how to um vibe with the audience how to connect with people and while performing and um we did quite well considering that we were fairly green at gigging and um writing songs and, and doing things we were trying to be creative i wanted to have some progressive stuff going on we still had a bit of time signature stuff nothing compared to what we do now with outside in but um it was the start of that kind of yeah learning how to push boundaries and because we were musically naive, particularly myself, I say in that sentence, I, I had a little idea what I was doing. I think the freedom that comes with not knowing what you're doing is just incredible. And um, I, I missed that, you know. It was cool being so green. Yeah, it, it's again, it's another quote that you've made. I was so free in those days being musically clueless. Now, obviously you weren't, but you were learning, but still a long way to go. You said being musically clueless was a very empowering performance-wise. So, yeah, yeah, I get that completely. It's part of the journey, isn't it, when you get those free total moments, and we should be long in those moments. It's something that you try and seek later and realise, you know, as my musical abilities developed uh, a little bit, I became self-critical because I could hear more imperfections and more things that I didn't like about what I was doing that I was missing when I was in those clueless days, um, which was freeing. But <clears throat> as soon as I upskilled a bit, I started to um, doubt my abilities a lot more because, yeah, I could hear those imperfections that I had 
been naive enough to miss earlier. And so I became quite, uh, I lost a lot of confidence as I upskilled. Um, and I had to refine that and redevelop my enjoyment of actually performing because I kind of, I spent some time ruining my enjoyment because I became obsessed with this perfectionist goal uh, because I wanted to be able to live up to what I was hearing in my mind. Uh, and I wanted to be able to perform, you know, perfectly. And I, there was, there is still absolutely no way that one can do that. But it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because sometimes we have to go down, we have to do that journey to find that out. Because if we don't find that out, then we don't know what to come back to sometimes. So or we don't know what to necessarily, where it is that we're really searching for. So I think all of those things, I don't know if you would agree with this, really make up the artists that we become. The, that makes up the artists that you're becoming. You're really understanding it. I think yeah. so. Yeah. On a, I think that self-doubt was another opportunity for growth you know I realized I wasn't enjoying it anymore because I thought I wasn't good anymore because I'd upskilled so upskilling made me <laughs> doubt my abilities so much more and I realized uh, later in the crash test days I'd kind of become very fixated on outcomes and less fixated on process and the journey and the enjoyment that should come with that and that was tied to you know, my own self-doubt and everything. So I had to address that and really relearn how to enjoy it and try and bring some of that naive freedom from my younger years back, yeah, at, back into it. Exactly. Um, so I understand now, um, going back, your parents wanted to buy you piano lessons, right? And it wasn't, like you said before, it was not cutting it for you. So, but they really wanted you to do something that was they, they could understand. Tell us a bit about your parents and those piano lessons. So they were and are um, incredibly supportive parents. Um, and I guess with the piano lessons, there's a clear path. You're learning an instrument and developing. Whereas wanting to be a contemporary musician, a rock star, there's no clear path. I still have here yeah, electric guitar player. There's still no clear path. Now I'm, what, 38 now. And, um, you know, I was 13 learning how to play in bands and stuff. And... Um, my parents encouraged me like very, very much. They let me put on a little concert in the backyard to some mates, you know, um, that come to shows, uh, which would have been absolutely awful for them. Um, they still come to the odd <laughs> show and they, they, they sing along now. Um, oh, great awesome stuff. Yeah, they're really yeah. supportive. They kind of get it now. <laughs> you know, yeah, they do. And they've always wanted to get it and they've always been supportive. But I think having a, having a 13, 14, 15-year-old son who's, doing okay at school, but uh, is definitely bunking on piano practice. Uh, his piano teacher's getting exasperated with him and maybe having quiet words to <laughs> mum. Do you think the son should maybe stop these lessons because he's not doing the re rehearsing in between lessons? And yeah, um, I didn't see the value. Yeah, you took up piano lessons again, yeah. yeah. You're a teenager, you don't see the value. And so then, yeah, in my 20s, I did. I wish I had. I'd be a virtuoso now. Yeah. <laughs> had, I kept, had I stuck to it, I'd be a really mean piano player now. Oh, but you I, would um, be so mean, yeah. So did you take <laughs> the piano lessons up again in your mid-20s to, um, to sort of say thanks to mum and dad, or did you really want to do that? I'm sure you really did want to do that. But was there a bit of um, stuff going on there? Yeah, I wanted to upskill. Um, I'd actually, we'd been playing at this place called The Dog's Bollocks, and we'd become kind of <laughs> great Where's place. Where's the dog's bollocks? Whereabouts is it? Right in the city. 
uh, right okay, in the museum, yeah. there, top of um, yeah. K Road, and yeah. yeah, it's right in the in the love heart the name, of it love the name. Yeah, it was, a, it, it was. It's actually not as amazing as it once was, but you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was an absolute, you know, central point for gigs and stuff. It was a fantastic venue, and um, we became. I mean, we played there almost every couple of weeks. We became really good friends with the guy that um, ran the audio side of things and the bookings and stuff. He actually um, became my musical mentor and, and taught me a lot of things. But um, he said, because we used to play this like psychedelic set of, of our tunes, this is with Crash Test, and then we'd get cocky and pull out Benny and the Jets to close. And he pulled me aside and he just said, look, you guys create such a vibe with all your originals and then you go and spoil it by playing um, Elton John right at the end. And plus a few of the chords are, are not even quite what they're meant to be here. Perhaps you'd like to, to get some lessons. And it turns out that this, this sound guy is one of the best piano players in the country, if not the best. He's absolutely immaculate and he can play these like Greek opus piano pieces that not many people on the planet can actually pull off. Wow. And he yeah. taught me so much about music and about composition. And he helped uh, finesse my songwriting around an EP that we were doing with Crash Test. And he made me doubt my abilities even more because he, <laughs> he taught me enough new skills that once again, my um, confidence, you know, suffered a little bit there, which ultimately was a good thing because it, pushed me to keep developing and, and to upskill as a musician, which I needed to do. Um, so yeah, I had some, some lessons with him uh, on piano and, and developed my voice a little bit just through some suggestions and stuff. But really, he was um, instrumental in, in helping me with some of the stuff I was writing. I'd show it to him and go, that's cool. But, but you suddenly change key there and you haven't actually kind of worked that towards that. You've just abruptly done it. So maybe you could think about this and that and he just filled in some gaps for me musically, which was really cool. And I'm still in touch with him now. He's a good friend and still a bit of a mentor too. Yeah. And his name again, please. His name is Angel Joseph Gordon. And he is... Uh, um, Angel Joseph Gordon. Yeah. He actually toured with um, Howard Morrison. He's a very well-known Māori um, New Zealand performer from 20, 30, 40 years ago. And when he was a teenager... Um, he was a virtuoso, you know, gifted piano player, and he was picked up to tour when he was only about 15 years old to tour with these, uh, you know, very seasoned adult musos. <clears throat> yeah, such a cool guy, such an interesting guy. Fantastic. And, and given the fact that he taught you better, better skills at the piano, did this also please your parents, and did it also please you to be able to please your parents? <laughs> I always want to please my mummy and daddy. Um, yeah, of course. I mean, I think um, they had two sons who showed a lot of promise at school yeah. uh, to start with anyway. And um, yeah. now they've got an actor and a musician <laughs> as sons. So, you know, Yay! I think um, my, both my parents are creative yeah. um, thinkers, but they've, you know, fallen into sort of more traditional um, lines of work and things where they haven't exercised that creativity. And I think it's probably been quite cool for them to have quite out there, left-leaning, you know, uh, very creative boys uh, who are, like, unashamedly pursuing really challenging um, creative paths. I think it's quite cool for them. Uh, they're definitely proud of us. 
even though they would have liked us to become the veterinarian or doctor well, that we might have talked about at primary school. You know, we quickly grew out of that and wanted to be uh, pursuing, you know, alternative options. Yes. And you can almost understand why parents feel that they want their children in the way that they think security is. But you could have been doing that quite miserably, you know. Totally. Or, or, you could have loved it, but something would be so missing. It's, we're here, I think, to express ourselves. I'm so sure of that. Mm. And I think, you, I think you're in a beautiful position that you've actually had that wonderful support, even though they might have been very concerned. And now they see what it is. It's your expression of who you are, isn't it? That's right. I think they, their main concern has always been that we're happy. And I think at times being artists, in a, a very small country, doing something musically, for example, that's not particularly mainstream, it's a hard path. And there's been a lot of times where both my brother and I have not been super happy because the path has been hard. And I think um, now that we're learning how to enjoy the process a lot more, I'm learning that's my number one priority with the musical life that I'm living, is I actually need to learn to enjoy the process because the outcomes aren't always what you want and even if they are the outcomes don't fulfill you as much as the enjoyment of the process and now that I've learned that uh, you know it's taken me a long time and I still have to relearn regularly that that's the goal I think mum and dad are a lot happier for us now that we're finding the happiness in what we're doing in the process rather than this teenage dream that we had you know when I was 14 15 I was obsessed uh, with you know bands like Radiohead and Tool and Pink Floyd, I still am, and but I wanted to be a rock star, and that dream had to adapt and be reshaped uh, with a, an adult mindset, and um, that uh, unrealistic dream um, can make you unhappy on your journey because it's it's not the it's not the fulfilling thing. And it may not happen in the way that you dream of. And I think accepting that and reshaping the dreams and the goals to be more realistic and also to, to get fulfillment out of every part of it that you can. You know, I think when, when we started recording Karma Train, that was the focus. And I think that's a couple of years of, of work and growth in that um, writing and recording process that's helped me to actually enjoy what we're doing a lot more and you can hear it in the music that we're enjoying ourselves I can certainly and I think it comes across more genuine because of that we're not writing with the end goal in mind we're writing to have fun and express ourselves along the way and man it, when I listen to those songs now it reminds me of that part of my journey in a, in a positive way Yes. So, I mean, that to me sounds amazing. It sounds so much more realistic. And uh, it is, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. I had this same thing because that's what you saw the people that you loved and they were there doing it. But uh, I've had the privilege of working with some of those people that I've loved, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a singer um, in the prog rock profession, I will say. And um, uh, they said that aspect of it appears exciting and it can be, but it's very, very short lived. It's not what it actually is. To, to be like, you, like you're discussing here, to me, this is where it is. This is what success is. It's within yourself. And the fact you are reaching a, uh, an audience, 
indeed you are you know so if that's where it all is and what you're just saying I think is so um so true it really is and I'd just like to also also add to this that you did go on to also you know you're really accumulating here you went on to take some vocal lessons and started learning a few operatic pieces and was hoping that this would develop your vocal technique and grow your vocal abilities which of course it would have you'd have learned something from it and again you do say my confidence disappeared more as my skill level increased uh, very slightly. So this is obviously something that happens to artists, I think. I think um, that we we take it very personally, don't we, when we realise how big a hill is to climb. <laughs> mm, that's right. So, yeah, tell us a bit about that, because it's really interesting that you've done that, because you care so much about your skill sets, which is so important to keep where you are, but they're all different experiences. So how was that particular experience for you, the vocal lessons? Well, you think when you upskill that you'll feel more confident because you've got new skills at your disposal. But um, for me personally, yeah, almost every time I've gone through a learning growth phase at upskilling on my, one of my instruments, I've definitely lost confidence because it's opened up a whole new world of these are new things that I can't do <laughs> that I didn't even know about. <laughs> so um, I had some opera lessons. Uh, well, I had some vocal lessons I just wanted a vocal coach. I didn't really know where to start. And I um, reached out to my music networks and someone said, oh, my, my friend's mum is a, is a vocal coach. So I went and had some lessons and it turned out that she was a very strict um, opera teacher. But I ended up having, I don't know, maybe six lessons with this lady. And um, I can almost do, at the time, I probably can't do it now, but I could almost do a couple of like full Italian style sonatas or whatever. And <laughs> I, um, yeah, I learned how to do them and it, it helped in the breathing sense and yes. it helped because I was having issues with tension and not knowing how to release that tension to get the notes that I was trying to get. And so it taught me about displacing the tension from my face and neck and shoulders into grounding and imagining pushing down into the ground rather than feeling the tension in my upper body and it helped me with some breathing stuff and I could show her some stuff that I was doing in my own music and contemporary stuff and she could see that I had some some skills that I had learned or developed on my own and she gave, just gave me a bit of reassurance that I was indeed doing certain things correctly because I'd never had anybody give me feedback in that technical sense on my vocal approach and so there was always a bit of a doubt like Oh, maybe people who know what they're doing hear me and think I'm absolutely terrible or, or you know, <laughs> he's doing it wrong or, you know, something like that. So it was nice to be told, yeah, no, that's that's how you do it. You're doing it in the right place in your body and, you know, these are other some tricks, here's some tricks that can help you to ensure that you're staying in those areas in your body and doing things correctly. Yeah. So it was nice um, just to, to upskill and, um, yes, you know, lose that confidence and then go back to building it up again it was a good process and I definitely did learn some new skills and improve sort of a little bit here and there as well which is always nice yeah we lost you just a couple of sentence, uh, sentences back actually there was a dip you were just talking about uh, your experience of your skill sets that you found through them yeah <clears throat> I mean I, I was just sort of wrapping up that having those lessons did help me to kind of upskill enough to then go and do some more work on my own, I guess, which is always my way. I'm a very sort of self-learning person. Show me the exercises, show me the tools, and then I'll go and apply them. 
yeah to try and develop them on my own and, and um, so it was worthwhile doing I think whilst sure, becoming yeah. an artist which is what that's exactly what you you've done you are the artist now but it's like on that process of becoming self-aware the more you know the more you realize you don't know therefore the more you may feel you can't meet the expectation of what may be expected of you which in simple translation I suppose you could say is fear and instead of just enjoying that journey which we talked about earlier and I, I we must all experience this to some extent because I think as an artist an artist is very very um testy you you you're really in your emotions aren't you really in the kinesthetic area of the body and and feeling everything because you're becoming the artist so um I think you're always barking at the right tree it's just part of the process we've got to learn not to take it uh, so personally but we do and uh and sometimes that's the way it happens but it's learning not to and I think you sound to me very much like you're a man that's learned uh learned how to get it right and all those experiences have been so valuable but to store them emotionally correctly and and not take them so personally seems to come across so nicely now so would you say that feels right or am I barking at the wrong tree <laughs> yeah I've definitely no no I've definitely I think what you know there are certain lessons that come up repeatedly in in one's yeah. journey and those are the ones that are hard to remember or easy to forget and slide into old habits and um, ultimately, you know, when, when we started working on Karma Train, we had to make some decisions about what we wanted out of it before we started this huge undertaking of writing and recording all of the stuff. And the, the key thing was to enjoy the process because at the end of the day, that's kind of all you've got is the process. And, you know, a song might do well or a song might do terribly, and that has to be less important than the process and enjoying the process. So I think there was a huge amount of growth just working on the album and project managing the recordings and, and um, treating it like a bit more of a job than a creative, a fully creative hobby. Treating the album process like, okay, well, Johnny, our guitarist and myself, we, we, we have responsibilities in our day jobs and we have skills from our day jobs that we need to apply to running this band and to project manage this album. And prior to that, it had been solely a totally creative thing, which we almost deliberately didn't have the sense of organization associated with it so that it would be fully creative. And I think coupling the creative things that needed to be done with some structure and rules and uh, proper organization really had a nice balance and grew us as band leaders and, and songwriters and as a partnership for creating this stuff. You've, you've become self-aware, you've become creative and uh, not boxed <laughs> in like they try to do to us at school. So, I, I, yeah, that wasn't my thing at all. And also for any of you out there that, you know, are, as a vocalist, maybe looking for vocal coaching at all, wherever you are across the world, look for look for a vocal coach who knows what they're doing as well, but for contemporary artists, because the classical way of teaching is quite different to the um, contemporary way of teaching. There can be quite a difference. And if you're wanting that modern sounding voice, but they can cross over as well. There's some great vocal coaches out there. There really are, like Roger Love, who does all the big stars in um, Hollywood and all like that. And uh, there's loads of them. I can't think off the top of my head. But uh, you can uh, write to me if you're, if you're looking and you just want some help or information. Tracy Hitchens Music at gmail.com. 
even. And uh, I can just um, give you some sort of pointers or whatever, because that's been my life in London. I was a, a vocal coach voice therapist, amongst a million other things, of course. <laughs> and um, yeah, so now moving on to Karma Train, which is your fabulous debut album. And uh, just absolutely wonderful. I'm loving the different tracks, uh, Mushroom, Garden of Light, Om, oh, there's Endless. And, do you know, it's funny, I was listening to Mushroom and I thought, you know what, this is like a psychedelic riptide as you go through it. <laughs> and uh, when he's lying on the... <laughs> yeah, that one was a fun one to write, for sure. It was it, yeah, I loved it. I loved the, the visuals. And and when he was lying on the floor, um, his eyes became so blue. Was that a clever little thing or was his eyes that blue? No, there was some... some... <laughs> post effects added to that to make it look like he was going on somewhat yeah. of a psychedelic journey himself. Yeah. So that's Johnny and again, and our guitar player. Yeah. Oh, that was Johnny. Right. Okay. Yeah. And because you and Johnny are the main writers in the band, aren't you? Yeah, um, that's right. Yes. And Garden of Light. Um, I thought, you know what? There's the timekeeper. There's the boy doing as he's told. There's the school days kind of feeling that in that job. And I thought Groundhog Day. Yes, we deliberately, I'm glad you picked that up because we definitely wanted to reference the 1991 classic Groundhog yeah. Day, Bill Murray. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely one of the influences. We wanted that to come across. The other the other movie that we were trying to reference in that video was um, Breaking Down. With, right. Um, Michael Douglas, another 90s movie where the stage of dude <gasps> goes to McDonald's to order some breakfast and then he just gets pissed off and leaves and walks out on his life and goes on a bit of yep. a bender. And um, so, yeah, we wanted both of those movies were a big influence for that video clip, for sure. Brilliant. Absolutely wonderful. And Om, um, let's look at Om, because Om is a very important sound in my life. It's actually a healing sound as well. So um, I noticed when I was listening to that, I noticed this quirky sound that you sometimes ha have on the vocals and on other songs as well that I've listened to. There's this kind of like almost like a radio. I don't know what the correct sound is for it. On this audio sound on the actual mic that you have is slightly retro fuzzy but not fuzzy. It's professional fuzzy, let's say. I love the sounds that, that, that you use and go between. So tell me a okay. bit about Om and a bit about that, please. Yeah. Well, Om, well, the video clip's quite interesting because we used um, puppets, which my younger brother had access to. They were custom built for a, a kid's show, but they turned out to be quite creepy puppets. And with the backdrop of our song, uh, it became quite a unique and kind of creepy, sort of a disconcerting kind of uh, video clip. <laughs> but the song itself, um, I reference uh, hearing the voice of my father and hearing the voice of my son. And I think Om for me is very much talking about my place in the chain of events. You know, my father, I'm the middle chain and I've got a son as well. And just seeing your 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 place in life and in the the cycles of life and and once I had uh, my first child, it definitely kind of changed my perspective on life and made me see a lot more what place I play a role as in the chain of things. Um, I actually got my dad and my son to read a quote from um, the book Siddhartha, which we then put in the bridge of the song if you listen very carefully through a good pair of headphones you can actually hear my dad and my son and it sort of switches between their voices uh, saying some lines out of the book 
um, it makes me emotional when I hear it because um, yeah, 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 just, just seeing my place in the chain and, and yeah. <clears throat> empathizing with my dad so much more now that I'm a dad myself and just realizing, yeah, who, who you are and, and where you fit into things seemed to become cl- clearer for me once I had my little boy. Yeah. So can I just say to the guys out there, I think um, what we're talking about at the moment here, what uh, um, uh, Mikey's uh, talking about is uh, Karma Train lyrically is hugely influenced by the novel uh, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. And each song represents a character from the book. So, and you said that we, you, we also paired a photograph with each song, working closely with a New Zealand photographer, James Fife. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Okay, so when when we were developing the songs for the album and starting to piece together the options and the order, um, I noticed that maybe two or three of the songs, probably three, were influenced by this book, Siddhartha, that I'd read uh, a few years earlier. And I kind of read it every every so often now just because it's, it's had such an impact on me. But um, th- it kind of made sense to start pairing the remaining songs with other chapters from the book. And uh, over time, I developed it into a concept album where each song from the album represents a chapter from the book, and which was great as far as whenever I was feeling uh, challenged with a bit of writer's block or not sure where to go or how to finish the song or what the chorus should should say, I could go back to the chapter that I'd associated with that uh, song and reread it and find some new little pearls in the book and then try and weave that back in to strengthen the meanings and the themes of the song. So each song uh, ties to a chapter from the book, but also has one of my own personal stories that's a parallel to what happens in that chapter. So there's kind of a whole bunch of dual meanings attached to each song. One that's a Siddhartha reference and one that's a Mikey Brown reference, that's something that's happened in my life that's comparable to what happens to the character's life. And so then we've started to have this really nice multi-layered piece of, of music and with art tied to it and with stories and the stories became deeper because of the um, association with the book. And because in the story, the simplest one-liner would be like, dude goes on spiritual journey to discover enlightenment and looks in all these different facets of life only to discover it in the most simple place towards the end of the book. Um, it's a very Buddhist-influenced book, which is quite appealing to me. Uh, apparently, you can actually line up the book with the noble truths of Buddhism and there's some other layers of, of connectivity there which one can dig into, um, you know, if, if they're that way inclined to really dig some art all the way to every single connection that it has. And so um, one of my very close friends, James Fife, is a New Zealand photographer. And um, as we were kind of shaping up the album with all the themes Um, I spoke to him and said it would be really amazing if you could choose from your collection of photos. And he's been spending time in Japan, Cuba, South America, all all sorts of different places around the world. And um, it would be awesome if you could choose a song to go with, sorry, to choose a photograph to to go with each song on the album. 
So then me and James had photos stuck all over the wall and on the floor and he had his sort of top 12, 13 that he was suggesting and we were umming and ahhing and trying to get the colours that that, that uh, represented the feelings the best and, and the imagery that, that tied in really nicely. So we ended up with a set of postcards uh, with the lyrics on the back and James's photos on the front to accompany the album because we're really big on... I love it when bands hide Easter eggs in their artwork and their music. And then if you listen carefully, you can hear at the end of the song, such and such saying this. And if you play it backwards, you know, it tells you the recipe for hash cakes or something. I don't know. I just love that kind of multi-layered and, and I've always enjoyed digging, you know, Radiohead, Tool, Pink Floyd, they hide and there's stuff to be discovered that's more than just the face value of each song or the lyrics. There's artwork that ties into it. And so doing that, tying in these personal stories to songs and then photos from my best friend's collection, just giving layers to what we're doing and strengthening meanings and themes for what we're working on. It made it a um, you know, multi-faceted piece of art that I get heaps out of just going back through it. And it's got so many breadcrumbs from my life in it. And yeah, just giving people things to discover and to accompany the listening experience, you know, to give yeah, people exactly. a more thorough, something tangible as well. If you buy a digital download of our album, you know, you can also choose to buy a, a packet of postcards, which they're beautiful photos from my friend, but also like you can read along the lyrics. People like to do that if they're significantly, um, you know, moved by what they're listening to. I want to make it more layered for people. It's more than just sound there's so many more things to be discovered in there if they want to do some digging that that just sounds absolutely wonderful hearing that that then that is what it but that's the magic of it isn't it it is art music is art and uh that just sounds wonderful and you and johnny now you and johnny are the main writers so um and finally managing to apply some of your project management experience from a day-to-day jobs to music life so tell me about you and johnny because we're kind of getting close to wrapping up this first little visit together i know you're going to come back so there's just so much more that you have to share we we need to talk about all band members but we're going to just talk about you and johnny to uh let's find out about you guys together and what brought you together and how it is with you both cool so great um johnny we had the band called crash test for favorite things which was a three-piece band with myself playing guitar synth keyboard singing and then bass and drums as well which was great fun and it was the musically naive time so it didn't matter that I was a bit sloppy on all of those instruments and just having a blast and (laughs) creating a vibe and then as that band developed um, we needed a a real guitar player so um, we had auditions and I ended up getting Johnny on board and um, Johnny and I both had some times working with Angel Um, I was having lessons from him but every now and then he would come to a session and help Johnny and I to understand, you know, writing melodies between piano and guitar. And um, there was an EP we were working on at the time. And so me and Johnny were growing musically as a writing partnership. This is probably 10, 11 years ago now. And we started to learn how to write together. And so we did a lot of stuff with piano and guitar, interlocking melodies and things. And that band sort of fizzled out over time, but me and Johnny had this really strong chemistry for songwriting. So we started a new band 
and we got these guys on board for the outside in crew eventually and we had a couple of lineup changes but as things built johnny and i's um writing partnership strengthened and strengthened over time and um we did our first ep with a couple of guys um adam was on drums and still is now and a different adam on bass in those days and um we did our first ep and look we learned a lot but we were still figuring out how to be the artists that we wanted to be and how this songwriting partnership was really going to work and um towards the end of that ep recording we actually stopped working together because we didn't have the skills to to do it properly together like that and we were clashing on things we were still learning how to work together like that and how to make the partnership work and we had some time off which was probably one of the best decisions we made because then I was working with outside in and it was a struggle and things weren't developing how uh, they should have and I had this demo for the garden of light which was just me playing this 5/4 idea on the piano and singing it's really really rough and I thought I'm going to send it to Johnny and just see what he thinks and Johnny replied with positively saying great I'm keen to work with you again like the song is cool and he'd arranged it into basically the demo that started off karma training uh and his idea of rearranging it in such a way lose the piano completely but take the chords and put them on bass he'd arranged this prog brilliant prog song out of it and um that was the spark and our drummer and said do you want to get Johnny back in the band should we just you know get Johnny back and i said yeah i've already decided that <laughs> so johnny came back in and because we'd had a break from each other and because we'd both probably done some develop self development stuff we became this really great songwriting partnership again but all the things that were issues prior had fallen away and because we had decided we're going to project manage band like we do our jobs we're going to enjoy the process we're not going to write purely focused on outcomes we're going to write focused on enjoyment and creativity we had a mean time writing the album and it just solidified our ability to lead the group and to work as a partnership like we'd never worked together before it was just really smooth sailing so it sounds like uh something that i believe you've quoted that we've stopped hiding also behind the excuse that the music uh project it was solely creative but you actually also applied um a planning and deadlines as you're suggesting for the creative process so bringing it into the four together yeah so we had to project manage the boys and say well the recording dates are these dates the drums are being tracked on this day you need to have these four songs ready we had spreadsheets and plans and things that we hadn't dared to venture into before it seems so obvious now with a bit of hindsight and of course you need to plan things properly i mean we'd always drifted towards goals rather than having that laser focus of these are the steps this is how we're going to achieve it it had always been very organic and slow and progress had always been hindered as a result but this time it was like right well we're organized we've got a plan we've got spreadsheets we're talking every day we're we're running it like like a, like a proper job and it worked and the album got done and now yeah we're working on the second album now i'm trying to bring back all those 
memories and get it all happening again. Fantastic. So what a great story. And I, and I take it that Johnny's purely guitar? Uh, he's guitar, yeah, but he's very, very musically minded and he's grown since I've known him, the dude has grown astronomically. I mean, he he recorded recorded 90% of the sounds. Um, you know, we went to his place and recorded all the instruments at his place and he kind of produced most of the songs. Him and I sat there and worked on arrangements together. But um yeah, he's he's a he's a genius. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I'm lucky to have him on board here. He's he's crazy self-motivated and he just goes and learns shit on his own, watches YouTube videos until he gets it and yeah, he's, a, he's an inspiration to me. The stuff that he's picked up on and, and developed, how he's developed uh, has helped the project amazingly, but it's been good for me having a partnership with a guy that's, yeah, just so onto it and, and yeah. driven. It's been yeah. cool. Wonderful. It's a good partnership. That's great stuff. So oh, you've, heard the, you've heard it out there, all, all you guys listening in. Um, isn't it great just to hear about how this all comes together over a period of actually quite a long time? It's just, you don't just get up and play guitar and uh, become famous. Well, it has happened, of course, but uh, you know the real process is so much more. It's a real journey, isn't it? And I do look forward to um, Mikey's going to be coming back, aren't you, Mikey? And we're going to be talking about the rest of the band. Can you just give me the names of the other uh, band members, please, and what they play so we can savour it for the next time you come on, we'll chat about them as yeah, well. Sure. Who are they and what do they do? So obviously I'm Mikey Brown. I'm the singer and write the lyrics and vocal melodies. I play a little bit of piano and uh, guitar as well, but I try and just focus on singing in the band these days uh, because we're playing sort of semi-technical prog. I want to make sure I'm nailing my department and not playing sloppy keys underneath the sloppy vocal. I, I need to focus in. So um, vocals is definitely my main instrument these days, and I've really sort of started honing that. Then Johnny Barnard is my uh, songwriting partner. He's my co-leader of the group, and um, he plays guitar and also, like, helps write so much of the stuff. He plays bass on a lot of the demos just to get them up and running. He programs the drums just to start building the songs. He is, yeah, he's a partnership with him and I, the outside and songwriting team really then we've got um adam tobeck who's our brilliant drummer uh he plays in a bunch of different situations he's just finished doing jersey boys uh while that was here um he did matilda he's played with a bunch of known new zealand acts as well he does a lot of session work plays on a bunch of stuff you would have heard of um people's records people call him up and say please play on my ep or my song yeah he's a full-time music uh Guy teaches music uh, as well as yeah, playing as a session dude. He's a mean jazz performer as well. He's got chops for days. And then we've got Elliot Park, who's our genius bassist. Um, he can play every instrument probably better than most of the other guys in the band secretly, but he is <laughs> mostly focused on bass. He, he can play upright as well. He's another jazz scholar. He's doing his master's at the moment. So I just went and watched his um, performance for that. And holy moly, absolutely mind-blowing stuff that this guy can do. We're very lucky to have him in the group. He is an absolute killer. Excellent. Oh, wow. We're dipping. <laughs> I've just lost uh, uh, Mikey. He'll come back in a second. Got a little bit of a connection this morning, guys, out there. Oh, you're there again, Mikey? <laughs> he's 
freakishly good user. <laughs> back to back to it. Um, and, and then Joe Park is our guitar player, uh, our second guitarist, and he is a absolute wizard as well. And again, lucky to have him. He's a longtime friend of Elliot, and um, when we were looking for a second guitarist. I said, I know, gosh, the chemistry between those guys is great, but yeah, Joe is an incredibly talented guitar player. So we're very spoiled. The lineup we have is really great. I mean, I'm spoiled. I'm the least musically trained person in the group. So I, I feel very, very privileged to be playing with these cats. <laughs> very spoiled. <laughs> you know what? It sounds so fantastic what you've all put together. It really does sound like such a professional outfit and yet so, so creative. And that's what it's running on. So, you know, guys and dolls out there, if you want to join me for the next time that Mikey comes in, I'm hoping it's going to be next week. We're going to see about that. And um, we're going to learn more about Karma Train, which is the debut album released in 2020. We'll learn more about that. And also we're going to learn more about a difficult second album. Actually, from what I understand, your current about halfway through Mikey on the second album you're sure it's a very normal to have um well I, I think I've heard this one before so many times in the bands I've been in um it's normal to have used up the majority of one's good ideas on the first album <laughs> it's where it comes back to <laughs> yep, very much so your whole life's work is collected up in your first album and then where do you go to with your second that's starting again from scratch yeah. So it's exciting, but it's daunting. It's just all in your head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's very exciting. And I, I think that's a thing that you just snap and you snap out of. You just suddenly realize there's so much that you'll come up with. I, I know that from hearing you talk with such a wealth of background and uh, there's all that experience, things will just pop up. And before you know it, this uh, difficult second album will be oh that mm, was easy hopefully. <laughs> well perhaps not but <laughs> well I hope it is but I hope I'm really looking forward to getting to talk about that and also there's a lot more to talk about because you know Mikey's just full of surprises I mean we've got the we've got to talk about the Karma Train theatre show so I'm really looking forward to that guys and this is the really putting on a theatre show and they're talking about fundraisings and all sorts of things and we can you know talk about the songs a little bit more again because they're absolutely wonderful some great stuff that you can find on YouTube get a taste of these guys they're really mean musicians great songs you know so what can i say so mikey thank you for coming on and is, is, is there anything you'd like to say out there to your fans at all before we say cheerio all together yes uh, um please don't be shy about commenting and messaging us about what we're doing if something that we've done appeals to you please tell us we'd love to chat to you if, if there's a song that you thought was cool or a lyric that appealed to you, or you want to know what I'm saying in such and such a song, please just message us, get in touch with us on any platform. We actually love talking about what we're working on. And if it's affected you in a positive way, like, yeah, I absolutely adore making connections with, with people who it appeals to. So don't be shy out there, guys. Jump on Instagram or Facebook or whatever platform you want to hassle us on. And please do hassle us. We, we love the interactions is what it's all about for us. So let's hear from you. Yeah, well, you heard it here, guys. That was Mikey from Outside In.
please go check them out. Uh, you know, they're all over YouTube and uh, you can just uh, get a real flavour and come back and join us again. And uh, we should be here next week, hopefully. If not, uh, we'll let you know when that uh, particular next part of the interview will be, hearing more about Outside In and uh, the hijinks from Mikey and his life unfolding. Well, I think he's done that now. And hasn't it been great just to see what it's like? And uh, I, I love it. I love these stories. They're so enriching. And they're, you, know, you hear it through the music, don't you? It's so wonderful. Wonderful. Anyway, we're just about to say cheerio to you. So this is Mikey saying goodbye. Gilda, thanks everyone for having us. Kakite. Okay, and so you heard that from Mikey. So uh, don't forget to join us again. We'll be having furthering this conversation because there's a lot more to be had. I'd like to thank again, of course, to Kev Ronan from the Progressive Underground, who's brought to my attention um, outside in. So thank you so much for that, Kev. Uh, take care of one another. Love one another. Don't forget to join me next week. And I'll look forward to sharing with you then. Until then, drive careful as well. And it's over and out from Tracy's Prog World. <laughs>